according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Hebrews chapter 11 is the passage where we are today. Hebrews chapter 11, working our way through the Hall of Fame. It was called the Hall of Fame of Faith, a great catalog of Old Testament saints that uh, walked by faith so as to be pleasing to the Lord, so as to glorify God in, uh, in what they did. And uh, we left off last week looking at Jacob. We had Isaac and Jacob in verses 20 and 21. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau even regarding things to come. And we're thankful that we have this verse here because uh, the Genesis material that we have uh, does not lend itself to what this verse states that it is by faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. And when we read in Genesis, what we see is Jacob attempting to steal the blessing and Isaac believing that he is blessing the wrong boy, that he believes he's blessing Esau. And it's only when that deception is, is, is uh, blown, when he knows what he's done, when he realizes that he mistakenly blessed the one that God wanted blessed, Then he repented. He trembled greatly and repented. And by faith, he confirmed that God's will be done in that blessing. So uh, if you missed it last week, I encourage you to listen to that MP3 and and, uh, glean those principles. Also then Jacob, as he was dying, it's on his deathbed even, that he crosses his hand so as to bless Ephraim over Manasseh. Both boys get promoted. Instead of being grandsons, they get to become legal sons, and their descendants are full tribes along with all their uncles. They get numbered among the 12 tribes of Israel in this promotion, but the younger is exalted over the older. Manasseh was older, but Ephraim is exalted over him. And uh, it's really a, a blessing that God is so patient with us that if it takes our deathbed to finally learn what we should have learned 75 years ago, then uh, God is faithfully giving us those remedial courses to, uh, to teach us these things that he wants us to learn. All right, well, we have a little bit more death yet to go. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying. And uh, it's kind of interesting because we have uh, when he was dying, as he was dying, and uh, we'll wrap this up, and then we finally get to go to Moses. And in verse 23, it's when Moses was born. And so we're done with the as he was dying, as he was dying routine. We get by faith Moses when he was born. And it really does serve as a new kind of a fresh start and a new look on things to look forward to the next generation of faith as it, as it proceeds in, uh, in this way. All right. God of spirit, he must be worshiped in spirit and in truth in preparation for our study today. Let's take a moment for silent prayer, assuring that each one of us is filled with the Holy Spirit, prepared to handle eternal truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing that it is for us in our generation, in this day, to stand forth by faith, accomplishing your good pleasure. We uh, thank you for the word of God that makes these things clear to each one of us that as we study to show ourselves approved, we are indeed workmen, rightly handling, rightly dividing the word of truth. I pray that we receive what you are equipping us with, that we accept it by faith, that we process it to make it real in our thinking, full knowledge, Father, so that we can live it out in wisdom in our lives. 
I pray that we would not be content to be merely hearers only, but doers of the Word of God. We thank you and we praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so we have by faith Joseph when he was dying. By faith Joseph when he was dying. If I have the right slide, there we have it there in verse 22. By faith Joseph when he was dying made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. So when is it that we can stop serving the Lord? When is it that we can consider ourselves uh, retired and done and we're done bearing fruit? The point is never, not while we're still walking this earth, while we still have breath in this body, we're still serving the God who gave us that breath. And uh, even on our deathbed, if there's work to be done, there's work to be done. There's a testimony to offer, there's teaching that can take place, there's opportunities to be a blessing so far as God gives capacity for that interaction. And as we saw last week, there was a blessing between Jacob and Joseph in the introduction of the two grandsons there, and there was ministry taking place uh, as Jacob was dying. And now for today's class, as we're looking at Joseph, there's ministry as he's dying. He has prophecies to make. He has not only making reference to the pending exodus, which is still four generations away, but also uh, things related to the millennium and the kingdom that's been 2,000 years in coming related to things that aren't, aren't here yet in, uh, in our day and age. And so the work doesn't stop. As long as we're still on this earth, there's still work to be done and uh, the opportunities there. So by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel, gave orders concerning his bones. Now, if you want the detail on this, you'll find it in Genesis, Genesis chapter 50, and then the follow-ups that come in Exodus and in Joshua, the follow-ups that come uh, 40 years later after their wilderness wanderings and the issues that happen there. So Genesis 50, we'll take a look at this. Joseph's benediction to his brothers anticipated the Exodus and the millennium, looking forward to the resurrection, looking forward to what he will participate in when his bones once again, are, uh, have flesh put on him when he walks in the resurrection glory of the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Genesis chapter 50 now, verses 24 through 26. It's the closing of the book of Genesis. And I tell you one thing, through teaching Hebrews chapter 11, I've been so excited about moving on to Genesis and the study that we're going to have following the conclusion of the Hebrews study because there is uh, so much there that... Uh, I think is powerful that we need in our day and age in terms of creation and the angels and everything else. So stay tuned for that. All right, Genesis chapter 50. And uh, so much in this, and even as um, Jacob dies and then the brothers get nervous. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what is it going to take for them to learn the grace that Joseph learned a long time ago? Uh, but we have the issues here. Let me back up even earlier than verse 24 because bones are featured even earlier in the burial of Jacob. And so uh, when, when, when Jacob dies, he does not want to be buried uh, in uh, Egypt. And so they're going to carry him uh, back to Canaan and bury him there. You'll see this in verse 12 and following. Genesis 50, verse 12. So his sons did for him as he had charged them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field for a burial site from Ephron the Hittite. 
And it's good that we recognize this. The cave of the patriarchs is still, to this day, it's still a, 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 a location there in Hebron that is revered among the, uh, the Jews especially, but even the, the Muslims will say, well, Abraham is our father too. So they, uh, they have a connection. But this uh, location here, keep it in mind. So after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. And you want to please, you want to be honoring your father and mother. You want to uh, respect their wishes and their desires. You want to be honorable to the things that they make known before they depart. And, uh, and realizing that honor your father and mother does not have an expiration date <laughs> as far as a command is concerned in Exodus. Uh, we still honor our father and mother even after they depart. We honor their memory and we honor their legacy as they ground us in the Word of God. And so these are the blessings here. Now, when Joseph's brothers, remember these guys? <laughs> They'd thrown him down a well, they sold him into slavery, they convinced their dad that he was dead all those years. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? You know, he's been nice for all these years, but, um, you know, maybe he was just waiting for dad to die. Maybe now that, uh, now that Jacob's gone, now's his chance to uh, get his revenge. And, uh, and yeah, okay, the carnal mind will think of those ugly things. Uh, he kind of tips you off to the way they think. But he gets the chance now to speak truth. Anyway, verse 16, they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged us before he died. Yeah, 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 sure he did. Saying, uh, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin and how they did you wrong. It's like, yeah, he had this addendum to his will. They, uh, <laughs> maybe you weren't aware of this, but he wants you to be nice to us. Joseph, of course, sees through all of this. Now please forgive the transgression of the servants of, of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. You know, Jesus wept. Joseph's now weeping. And I think in both cases it's because he's observing no faith. He's observing a lot of hopelessness. So when his brothers also came, fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? He sees right through their lies and he's going to teach them truth. And he's going to teach them this is, the, this is the Old Testament equivalent of Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And that we do things and we make decisions and God is free to overrule and, and control circumstances in such a way that it pleases Him in accomplishing all His good pleasure. And so he says, am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So what you did, God allowed it to happen because He had a purpose for it. God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Remember, they had seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. That family would not have survived seven years of famine had Joseph not been placed where he had been placed. And God used Joseph to, uh, to feed Egypt and to feed his family. And so it really is a, a remarkable testimony here of, of divine guidance. So therefore do not be afraid, I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons. 
And that becomes significant as well because there were prophecies related to the time that they would spend in Egypt and then the time that they would be brought forth. But uh, he lives long enough to see the third generation of Ephraim's sons. Also the sons of Machir, the sons of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. So Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. Now this is the message. When we get to verses 24 through 26, this is the message that Hebrews is spotlighting in Hebrews 11. That as he was dying, by faith, Joseph spoke of the Exodus. He spoke of the things to come. I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised and on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Remember the definition of Israel is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Joseph does not become a fourth patriarch. He's not the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob is the one that's renamed Israel. The God of Israel is the covenant God of of the Old Testament. The covenant God of the Jewish people in the Old Testament. So I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land that you don't earn, you don't deserve. (laughs) In fact, you're a bunch of rebels. But God's a God of grace, and He made unconditional covenant promises to Abraham. He promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph, so this is what he's teaching. He's teaching Abrahamic covenant, the oath that God gives. The God who cannot lie takes an oath. How powerful is that? When the God who cannot lie puts himself under an oath, and swears in an unconditional covenant that land, seed, and blessing are uh, the eternal inheritance for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this is a lot of doctrine in this one verse. And this is doctrine that, that the brothers would be expected to know, but it's not clear how much they did really grasp, how much they did appreciate. The fact that the, the confirming of Abraham's covenant to Isaac excludes Ishmael that confirming Abraham and Isaac's covenant to Jacob excludes Esau, and that the exclusion of Ishmael, the exclusion of Esau are significant, that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has covenant promises to all the descendants of Israel, all the descendants of Jacob, no matter what tribe they come from. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear. He puts them under an oath. And there's, there's a powerful adjuration to this. In fact, so powerful that we're told not to do it. We're told, don't, don't swear an oath. Don't just let your yes be yes and your no, no. Don't, uh, don't swear an oath in the name of God or the name of, uh, of, of a dearly departing one. You know, a deathbed oath. How powerful is this? You know, this can haunt a person for years later because on their deathbed you made a promise to to your mom or your dad or somebody and now you know we still have idioms to this day where you know I swear on my mother's grave or things like that we have expressions like that that goes back thousands of years that goes back to the ancient world where these oaths in the sight of the gods were binding and very powerful upon a person in uh, in a lot of ways so joseph made the sons of israel swear saying, God will surely take care of you. You shall carry my bones up from here. What they had just finished doing, what they had just finished doing for Jacob, taking Jacob up and burying Jacob in the covenant land of promise, he's making them promise that they would also do for him. But not immediately, not right away. Only when the nation is redeemed. Only when the people are redeemed 
as, as a fulfillment of what God has promised to do. Then and only then should they carry the bones of Joseph with them. So um, you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 and was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. And uh, this, uh, a lot of folks have questions related to this too. Like, well, what about, what are the various burial practices and what is biblical and is there anything wrong with cremation and what's, uh, is embalming appropriate and, and why, why were the Egyptian practices different from the Jewish practices and different cultural things as far as what different nations would do. You know, some of the, uh, and if you ever read some, some of them are fascinating in, uh, you know, uh, different, when you get buried with your favorite wife or things like that. Um, if, uh, or, uh, I like the, what the Vikings, you know, put me in a boat with a bunch of weapons and just light it on fire as it goes out there across the water and things like that. You know, that's kind of cool. Um, (laughs) the Bible doesn't really indicate the method or the mode or the practice or the custom the uni- so embalming is stated here and it's, it's, nowhere does it indicate that Joseph was wrong for doing this or that it was unbiblical or that it was displeasing to God or that any other methods are displeasing as it were. The fact is uh, ashes to ashes and dust to dust. We all, we're all Adamic dust in our physical bodies. And so uh, as this body deteriorates, uh, it does so in different ways, in different methods. Uh, as far as that goes. And it really doesn't affect the resurrection. All right? And so when, when we get resurrected, God knows where our remains are. And especially if the ashes are scattered or you're lost at sea, if, uh, you know, the, you've, you've fed the fish and, uh, and so your genetics are scattered amongst a bunch of fish. Uh, and, you know, God is sovereign enough because we all get a bodily resurrection that uh, God is sovereign enough to, to find the, the biggest chunk of you that remains and resurrect you, the rest of you, okay? I mean, early Christians were eaten by lions, and I mean, there were other, other things. All right. So with the embalming, this is, uh, I mean, this is really a side trip to my main message this morning, but the, the, <laughs> the embalming procedure is, is fine. You know, if you want to be a mummy, get wrapped up and do the whole Egyptian thing. I don't recommend that. But anyway, over to Exodus then. We see the next stage here because he had spoken of this. He had spoken of this. And how forward looking was he? Was he just looking forward a few generations? Was he just looking forward to Moses? Was he just looking forward to Joshua and the conquest of the land? What was he looking forward to? I think he was looking forward to the millennium. He was looking forward to his own resurrection, where he wanted to be when he woke up. All right, Exodus 13. So we got plagues through chapter 11. We got Passover in chapter 12, the death of the firstborn. A lot of doctrine with that we'll be touching on. Then uh, chapter 13, the consecration of the, thir- of the firstborn. And um, doctrine that's associated there. Say, so guess what? You didn't get killed. Um, You've got responsibilities now. All right, Exodus 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. That's my my practice. I take the shortest route, the fastest route. If uh, rule of thumb, shorter is better, unless it's not faster, then faster outdoes shorter. 
in uh, when Lydia's running around town. That's my rule. But the problem with the shortest route is the Philistines were in the way. And the problem there is the iron chariots, some of the giants, some of the clans that were there uh, would have been uh, terrifying for the Jewish people. And it would have afforded them the opportunity to go back. Okay, Remember we studied that in, uh, earlier in Hebrews 11, that had uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob been thinking about the land from which they came, they could have returned. They could have returned. And so God is making uh, certain now that when He brings Israel out of Egypt, He takes them by a route for which there is no turning back. He takes them through the Red Sea so that they can't turn around and walk back the way that they came. And uh, there is no going back. So this is what God says to himself. The people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Hence God led the people around by way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. And the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. Of all the things you want to take when you're packing for a, for a journey. <laughs> but see, there was a, a vow. He put them under an oath. This is the, the desire of, of Joseph. And he puts them under an oath to, uh, to fulfill this. And Moses is going to fulfill that, that vow. He took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you. You shall carry my bones from here with you. And since the near prophecy was fulfilled, the exodus is happening, then the uh, obligation is upon them now to take the bones with them as uh, what he had uh, requested. So, um, verse 20, Then they set out from, uh, from Sukkoth, camped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and in the pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from them uh, before the people. You never get uh, out there in your GPS and you're so far away and then you lose your signal. And then you're left wondering, what now? What, uh, where's my next turn? And, uh, and GPS says, uh, searching for signal. And uh, well, okay. Well, they didn't have to worry about that because they had something better than GPS. They had God walking with them. And that cloud was there, and that fire pillar of fire was there, day and night, never departed. And uh, the provision was made for them to do that. Now, fast forward, because they don't immediately walk into the land. In fact, they rebel, and uh, this generation has to die before they can go into the land. So when we get to Joshua 24, how many years is this now? Since, uh, since the bones departed Egypt, since Joshua died. I'm not Joshua, uh, Joseph, since Joseph died. And now they're finally going to settle the bones after the conquest. So Joshua leads them across the River Jordan. They, they fight at Jericho. They fight at Ai. They have all the wars in the south and the north. They divide the tribes. They give all the tribes their grants, their land grants. And there's still this business of these bones we've been carrying around for all these years. Joshua 24 and verse 32 so uh, let's see. Joshua's getting ready to die here. So in verse 28, Joshua dismissed the people, each to his inheritance. And it came about after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. 
And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnath Sarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim on the north of Mount Gash. Remember uh, the two faithful spies, Caleb and Joshua. Caleb was represented Judah of the tribes that went and spied it out. And uh, Joshua represented Ephraim, the hill country of Ephraim on the north of Mount Gash. And Israel served the Lord uh, all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua and had known all the deeds of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Now they buried the bones of Joseph which the sons of Israel brought up from Egypt at Shechem. Not uh, Machpelah, not not the tomb of the patriarchs, not the burial place of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember, Joseph does not become a fourth patriarch. Joseph is not the Lion of Christ. He is the the son of double portion blessing. He is the son of Jacob's right hand, but he is not Lion of Christ. Joseph is uh, not buried there in that burial place. But he is given a special burial place. Notice, in the piece of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of money. And there's a purchase that's made here, and it's curious, because uh, back when we're reading earlier chapters of Genesis and trying to find this transaction, we're not finding it. And we're looking for an arrangement that's made there between, um, between Jacob and Hamor. And all we can find as we're reading back there is the ugliness with Dinah and uh, a terrible massacre uh, with a boy that wanted to marry their sister. And uh, Jacob uh, apparently purchased this land on that, uh, on that occasion for 100 pieces of money. Anyway, they became the inheritance of Joseph's sons. Became the inheritance of Joseph's sons. And so we have the fulfillment of what he had desired. And uh, Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died. They buried him at Gabeah of uh, Phinehas, his son, which uh, was given him in the hill country of Ephraim. Remember, Levi didn't have a land grant. Levi didn't have territory, but they had cities scattered amongst all the other territories. And so the, uh, the burial of Aaron, I'm sorry, the burial of Eliezer um, is taken care of there in the hill country of Ephraim. All right. So we have the benediction to his brothers, anticipating the exodus, anticipating the millennium. Now, why does it matter? Why is he anticipating the millennium? Why does it matter where you get buried? Well, because where are you going to be raised when the Lord returns? When are you going to be raised? Now, for us in the body of Christ, we might get raptured without being buried, so it's a different in the church age, but let's just say you're buried. And when, where are you going to be when you get raptured? When the dead in Christ rise first? You know, do you want to be scattered over uh, Cowboy Stadium? Or, I mean, where, where do you want Daryl K. Royal Memorial Stadium? Or where do you want your ashes scattered? And do, does it really matter? Now, in the church, it doesn't matter. We're going to be caught up to be with the Lord in the air. So wherever we are resurrected, we're going to launch from there anyway. We won't be hanging out there very long. But for Israel, and specifically for Joseph, the idea being that he was so anticipating the kingdom of Jesus Christ, so anticipating the city to come. Remember, Abraham was looking for a city with foundations whose architect and builder was God. And, and we have to imagine that Joseph was looking for the exact same city. He was looking for the exact same place. And so eager was he to see that, he didn't want to have to walk from Egypt to there. He wanted to be there when the Lord returned. He wanted to be there when the kingdom came. 
He wanted to be there to behold that city, to behold his Lord. And that, to me, I think is, is a tremendous anticipation. Joseph is often taught as a type of Christ, although he is not in the line of Christ, and the New Testament never indicates a Joseph messianic typology. And so, you know, I'm not going to split hairs, and I'm not going to part fellowship with, uh, with you or anyone if they want to teach the typology of Joseph. Um, I think, it's, I think it's, it can be done and it can be useful as an illustration. There's nothing wrong with that. The, uh, but the fact is, is we don't have an explicit statement in, uh, in Hebrews or anywhere. Remember um, a few weeks ago we were talking about the sacrifice of Isaac when Abraham sat, was willing to sacrifice Isaac and it said he received him back as a type. Remember that? We have a very explicit statement about that that he received him back as a type. That's Hebrews 11 and verse 19. And so there, there's no question. The typology of Abraham and Isaac is grounded explicitly in the Scriptures. That the father who was willing to sacrifice his son was typology for us to learn from. And receiving Isaac back alive is typology for us to learn from. Because Jesus didn't stay dead. The father received him back alive. Our Savior is living today, seated at the Father's right hand. And so that typology of Abraham and Isaac is, is explicitly spelled out in uh, the Scriptures. We don't have that statement spelled out in, uh, in Joseph's case. Uh, we, we're not told, by faith Joseph gave instructions concerning his bones, and, uh, and by the way, this is typology for whatever, whatever, whatever. Okay, scripture does not call, explicitly call Joseph typology. But I think many people have seen it, uh, and it's not uncommon to have Joseph taught that way as a type of Christ. And so um, I wanted to put this out there for your consideration. He's not in the line of Christ. Almost every other type of Christ is, except Moses. He's a type of Christ, and he's not in the line of Christ. So already we see there's exceptions to the rule. Could Joseph also be a type of Christ? Uh, yes, I think so. Okay, um, But we don't have the explicit statement. Arnold Fruchtenbaum specifically addresses this in his commentary on Genesis. Arnold is very forceful. He says Joseph is not a type of Christ. And he defends that. And uh, it's a short little paragraph. While Joseph is often taken as a type of Messiah, he is never so used by the New Testament. In the New Testament, Joseph is mentioned four times. And he lists them, John 4, Acts 7, Hebrews 11, and Revelation 7. But in none of those four cases is he used as a type of Christ. Furthermore, Joseph is never characterized by sin. Now, if he would have ended the paragraph there, I would have been okay. But then Arnold goes on in the same paragraph with a furthermore, and I think he contradicts himself. And I think he actually undercuts the statement that he had been trying to make. Joseph is never characterized by sin. Well, now hold on. (laughs) That right there is towards making him a type of Christ, right? That right there, you have a character that, sure, he was a sinner, but none of his sins were recorded in Scripture. And when that happens, it's pretty rare when that happens, you know, we know about Abraham's sins, we know about Isaac's sins, we know about Jacob's sins. 
But there is nothing negative written about Joseph. Not one sin is recorded on Joseph's behalf. He was hated by his brothers. He, was, he suffered. He was a beloved son of his father. He was hated by his brothers. He suffered on their behalf. There's a lot of Joseph that parallels Jesus, right? Beloved of his father, hated by his brothers, suffered on their behalf. Joseph is given a Gentile bride. How about that? All right. But to continue my quote here from, I I think Arnold contradicts himself in his own paragraph. Joseph is never characterized by sin, not that he was sinlessly perfect, as no one is, but that the biblical record does not mention any lapse of faith in Joseph. That's pretty rare. I think uh, there's only a handful that are like that. Daniel's another one like that. There's no recorded sin, no recorded shortcoming. The text uh, relates lapses in Abraham and Isaac and in Jacob, but no lapse is mentioned in the case of Joseph. Finally, there is no account of any special revelation to Joseph. You know, he interprets other people's dreams. But here again, Arnold, really? Didn't Joseph get a dream of stars, sun, moon, and stars? And wasn't that revelation that he related to his brothers, that he related to his father, that got him in some trouble? So while there is a special revelation as God appears to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in various forms, there is no such revelation to Joseph. I would dispute that. So Joseph's life of faith is lived out based upon what he knew of the Word of God, not based upon any special revelation given to him by God. All right? So here's an illustration for you that even if you're reading a good scholar, even if you're reading a guy who's otherwise very solid, I love Arnold. We've had him here. All right? But even solid guys can be off target depending on what they're looking at and what they're writing about. If you really want what I think is a marvelous treatment of the typology of Joseph, uh, a journal article by James Hamilton is available. And it's in uh, the journal. I'm not going to take the time to read it here this morning, but if you want it, I can PDF it for you and, and email it. And uh, he goes so far as to say not only is he type of Christ, He's really an anticipation of David. And much of David's life echoes Joseph's life and is, of course, a type of Christ because no one disputes David being a type of Christ. But the foreshadowing of David actually is Joseph. Much of Joseph gets repeated in David's day. So in this case, now we've got like a, like a triple header, right? Or a double play. We've got Joseph as a type of David and David as a type of Christ. And it's a fascinating article. So if you want to read, uh, read that. Was Joseph a type of the Messiah? Tracing the typological identification between Joseph, David, and Jesus. And uh, several pages in this journal. And if, you, if you're interested, shoot me an email. And I'll, uh, I'll make a PDF of that and send it to you. Because that's uh, well worth reading through. But all the things that we talk about in, in terms of being, um, being about 30 years of age, for example, when he was uh, exalted, when he uh, sat at at the side of Pharaoh. And David was about 30 years of age when he became king. And Jesus was about 30 years of age when he uh, was baptized at the River Jordan. Uh, all of them uh, scorned by their brothers. David was ridiculed by his brothers when they were serving in the army of King Saul. And uh, David was the, was the runt of the litter shepherding those few sheep in the wilderness. Um, the hostility of uh, Joseph's brothers, obviously, with the coat of many colors and the things there. Um, and the rejection by Jesus. His half-brothers were not believing in him either, not until after the resurrection. 
did the half-brothers of Jesus believe that he was the Christ? And uh, any issues there? All right. We move on from Joseph to Moses. Hebrews 11 now in verse 23. And like I say, we have death and death in uh, Jacob and Joseph. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying. And now in verse 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born. And I love that. That's a, that's a neat transition from, from the patriarchs now to the Exodus. It's a marvelous trans, uh, transition from Genesis to Exodus. Now we're introducing Moses. Now we're crossing from the first book of Torah to the second book of Torah. And the author of Hebrews here is just continues going. He just keeps on going. He's illustrating these examples of faith for his readers. That they, that they will be overwhelmed. And as far as uh, the impact that this can have, I love it. To me, uh, you know, if, if you're content with one or two illustrations, uh, the author of Hebrews isn't content with that. That means God's not content with that. You know, how about a dozen? How about 30? Let's just keep giving you more and more and more. Let's just keep giving them until we run out of time. That's what the author of Hebrews is doing here. And he runs out of time. By the end of the chapter, he says, I've got to wrap it up. And he runs a whole lot of other names past them real quick. So, uh, not content. You know, you could end the chapter here and we could call it the Hall of Fame of Genesis Patriarchs or something, right? But he doesn't. He just keeps on going. Because Genesis leads to Exodus. And, and we know uh, Moses is the next character in the unfolding of the drama and the unfolding of God's plan for the Jewish people. And uh, we're going to go to Moses. And then we're going to go past Moses. We're going to go to uh, the walls of Jericho falling. So that's Joshua's gen- generation. And we're going to go to Rahab the harlot. And then, uh, so now we're into uh, Judges, right? Joshua and Judges. And, um, and then he just runs out of time. So in verse 32, he says, What more shall I say? Time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, Samuel, and the prophets. So, I mean, he doesn't have to stop there, but he's running out of time. So he does. Time will fail me. Whatever the sense of urgency is, and uh, remember, there was, it was something fervent that uh, he was, uh, the, the recipients of this letter were on the verge of going back to their old priesthood. They were on the verge of going back to Judaism, which means they would have packed their bags, returned to the Sanhedrin, humbled themselves in Jerusalem to the Sanhedrin, and attempted to rejoin the, uh, the Levitical priesthood that they departed from. And uh, the, the, the urgency is such that when this author is putting quill to parchment, he, uh, he has to wrap it up here and, and uh, finish this chapter and finish this book and, uh, and get, it, uh, get it out there. All right, so back to verse 23 then. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. All right, so technically speaking, this is not the faith of Moses. This is the faith of Amram and Jochebed. <laughs> this is the faith of Moses' parents. Babies don't apply faith. All right? They might be cute. They might be beautiful. We're told here Moses is the most beautiful baby uh, they ever saw. But uh, babies don't apply faith. That's why the verb is in the passive tense. It doesn't say, by faith Moses hid himself. It's by faith Moses was hidden. He didn't do the hiding. 
he was being hidden. His parents were the ones that applied the faith. It was Amram and Jochebed that did the hiding. They are the ones that applied the faith. Nevertheless, uh, the name of Moses comes out there because Moses takes center stage. Look at all these verses we get with Moses. Verse 24, it's by faith Moses. And uh, verse 25, verse 26 uh, gives his thought process in that. Uh, Verse 27, it's by faith Moses, right? By faith he left Egypt. Uh, Verse 28 again, it's by faith Moses. By faith he kept the Passover. And then verse 29, not only is it by faith Moses, but it's by faith Moses and everybody he was leading. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. And so this, uh, this section here, Abraham got a huge chunk of the chapter, but now Moses is getting a huge chunk of this chapter, starting in, uh, in verse 23. So I think that's why um, the author of Hebrews doesn't say, by faith, Amram and Jochebed. I think he uh, went ahead and introduced his Moses material with uh, naming Moses and then putting the verb in the passive tense. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Two factors into their thinking. Moses' beauty was item number one and the king's edict was item number two. And uh, they both affected him. Uh, That's not actually, no. The beauty affected them. The, The king's edict did not affect them. They had no fear for the king's edict because they feared God. When you fear God, how do you fear man? Right? So we have the the principle of this here. All right. Well, good thing Moses was not an ugly baby. We need to explore that a little bit. How would our Bible have been changed? We were reading in Exodus, the birth of Moses was as follows. He was an ugly kid. You know, but isn't this, I think it's great the way the Bible just reaches us where we are, for who we are, taking into account our humanity and our, um, our weaknesses, our predilections and and whatever else, if that's the right word. Um, He was beautiful. He was beautiful. And looking at this kid, looking at the beauty God uses that, all right? God uses that. And is, is that right? Is that wrong? It is what it is. People are what they are. Fallen people are what they are. And God's not unaware of that. All right. We have seven verses related to Moses. And they begin with the faith of Amram and Jochebed. And what a heritage. You know, and then how much of that? Because more than, than the three months, there was actually longer than that. They get him back. She gets to nurse him. His own mother gets to nurse him. Again, the sovereignty of God is at work through all of these details. And, you know, if, if, uh, if you were trying to write this as an act of fiction, you wouldn't write it as an act of fiction because you would convince yourself that it wasn't believable and no one would, would buy the story. And so if you're making up something like this, you wouldn't make up something like this. It's just, it's, 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 it's not believable. That's where truth is stranger than fiction and where God and his sovereignty is, is marvelous for what he does. 
So we have seven verses related to Moses, begin with, and they begin with the faith of Amram and Jochebed. And uh, we can turn back to Exodus 2 and take a look at it. When he was born, when he was born, it comes as a welcome change from when he was dying, <laughs> when he, as he was dying. What a, what a welcome change. And the whole tone changes now as we leave the patriarchs and we move into the, into the Exodus event. We move into the following history of the Jewish people. Because from generation to generation, God is the faithful one. He's not just the God of those dead patriarchs all that time ago. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is also the God of Moses. He's the God that brought Israel out of Egypt. And he's the God of Joshua that conquered the land. He's the God of David that, uh, that brought in that kingdom. And he's the God from every generation. God is faithful in, in this. All right? Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, where the names do not appear, by the way. You'll find the names in chapter 6. Now a man... Okay, so what happens between Genesis and Exodus? Well, the people are enslaved. And um, it doesn't take long. And uh, so they're uh, they're in Egypt... Exodus picks up where Genesis ends. And uh, so Joseph dies in verse 6 of chapter 1. And all his brothers and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not regard Joseph. The verb to know often speaks of things much more intimate than just knowing. Pharaoh obviously knew who Joseph was. Joseph saved Egypt in his generation. So he was known, but he was not regarded. He was not esteemed. And this is the Pharaoh of the enslavement. And he says to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. They're not Egyptians, but they're living here amongst us. And very quickly, they're going to outnumber us. And very quickly, they're going to overthrow us. And then Egypt will no longer belong to the Egyptians because those people are not us. This is a valid fear. This is a valid recognition of who we are, what this land is, and what this land is about to become. Because people that aren't us are going to be replacing us. All right. Let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply. In the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. In fact, much of Egypt's history was under a Hyksos dominion, whereby these Asiatic Hyksos people came in and invaded and took over and uh, subjugated the Egyptians for, uh, for many years. And uh, possibly a Semitic people even which would cause uh, the Hebrews to be held in even greater, being Semitic, they would be held in even greater uh, suspicion. That uh, we don't want them here. They can, they're like advanced troops to an invading army. Anyway, so they enslaved them. And uh, the more, the harder they worked, the more they multiplied. And they just kept, the more they were cursed, the more they were blessed. God kept blessing them. And so we reach the point here whereby 
they put a plan in place to murder the baby boys. Verse 15 of Exodus chapter 1, the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other was named Puah. How many Hebrew midwives were there? Well, if the name of one was Shifra and the name of the other was Puah, there were two Hebrew midwives, which is another testimony to the fact that six million Jewish people did not walk through the Red Sea that we have to address the big numbers for what they are and understand that the big numbers should be little numbers in, uh, in the Exodus. But anyway, side trip. So he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. If it is a daughter, then she shall live. How many times has Satan tried to murder the Jewish people? How many times has he tried to crush the line of Christ? But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them. Now this principle right there, I know the slide says Exodus 2, but I'm reading from Exodus 1. In verse 17, when it says, The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them. That is exactly the principle at work in Moses' parents. That's the principle at work when Hebrews 11 says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months. His parents feared God and did not fear Pharaoh. Did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the, boy live, let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? They're brought before him, their, their rebellion is exposed. And look what the fear of God blesses them with. He doesn't have them killed. I don't think he can. They don't fear him, and he's starting to fear them. (laughs) It's curious to me. But the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, they are vigorous. (laughs) Egyptian women are wimps, I don't know. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. You know, we're always too late. By the time we get there. So God was good in the midwi- uh, to the midwives and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. The house of Shifra and the house of uh, Pua. So Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son who is born you were to cast into the Nile and every daughter you were to keep alive. Alright, so that's the, that's the backdrop now. So here comes Moses. A man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. This is how chapter 2 begins. And they're not named until chapter 6, which is curious. Uh, The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful. Here's this term again. By the way, the the word for beautiful that's used in Hebrews, it's only used twice in Scripture. It's only in in the New Testament. It's used in Hebrews 11. It's used in Acts 7 when, um, when Stephen is talking about how beautiful Moses was. So both times it's used, it's used about Moses. Once in Acts, once in Hebrews. But here in the Septuagint, that same word is used, uh, that he's beautiful. And it's more than just a physical beauty too. It's, a, it's, a, um, it's really an all-encompassing term that speaks of his, uh, his, the wonder of his being, of his presence. Not just a beauty, not just an attractiveness, but everything that goes into uh, what you want in a leader, what you want in a, in a, 
in a hero. So um, she saw that he was beautiful and she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, so she's done what she's done and now it's reached a point where it can't be done anymore. She got him a wicker basket, covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. And the command was, cast him into the Nile. So that's what she's doing. God's in control. And this is so marvelous. So now he's, uh, he's not going to be eaten by the crocodiles. He's not going to, he's going to float. And his sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen. This is Miriam. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile. She saw the basket among the reeds, sent her maid, she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child. Now what did she see? Did she see an ugly kid? She saw this beautiful boy. She saw the most beautiful baby she'd ever seen. And, uh, and if she's the if she's the, uh, the one historically we think she is, then she was uh, not able to have children. There's debates about who this daughter of Pharaoh is, by the way, and um, some claim different things. All right. Anyway, she behold the boy. He was crying. She had pity on him. Said, this is one of the Hebrew children. All right. So she's having an emotional response to this beautiful boy and his crying. Does that make it right? Does that make it wrong? Does that make it biblical? Does it make it, what is it? It is what it is. It is what God knew it would be. God works through all the circumstances, including how people are going to respond to beauty, how people are going to respond to crying, how people are going to respond to um, to uh, current events in their political life. She's a daughter of Pharaoh. She knows what her dad has decreed. She knows what the Egyptians are afraid of. She may have her own plans, and probably does have her own plans for who's going to follow her dad on that throne. And if this beautiful kid can do it, and she can sit on the throne next to this beautiful kid, anyway... Nothing biblical about that, nothing godly about that, nothing right about that. But it's very believable and it's very marvelous that our God works all that into His plan. Working all things together for good. And so this ambitious woman without a child of her own now has one that she darn near gets on the throne after Pharaoh dies. We'll talk about that. I'm out of time. We'll come back to this next week. The, uh, the story of Moses is amazing. And not only what's in Scripture, but then the Jewish traditions and other things, he could have been the next Pharaoh. And there's no question that the one who became the next Pharaoh was very insecure. <laughs> you know, when you take a job that you know you were second best and uh, someone better than you should have had this job, like King Saul, when he knew that someone better than him was about to take, you know, that David was someone better than him. That's a rough spot to be in. And the carnally minded uh, person doesn't handle that well. All right, we'll come back to this next week, Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for Moses. I thank you for uh, Joseph. Thank you for the whole chapter, Father. The, um, the, uh, The chapter 
assumes that the readers know these stories. And therefore, your Bible assumes that we know these stories and we should know these stories. And we should be familiar with the whole counsel of your word. And we don't uh, ignore the Old Testament because the stories communicate the doctrine. And I pray that we will have the whole counsel approach. I thank you for Genesis. I thank you for Exodus. I thank you for Hebrews. And I thank you for a congregation that studies to show themselves approved. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we'll have a, a hymn.